Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 80 of Confessions of a Market Maker. I'm your co-host, Ray, a.k.a. All Day Ray, a.k.a. The Superman Lover. And I'm joined here by my witty co-host, former market maker, 20 years and current day retail trader, the pet clothing connoisseur, the <laughs> former nightclub bouncer who got more knowledge of nightlife than the Butabi brothers, the <laughs> gorilla of House Street, JJ. How's it going? Good, brother. How you doing? I'm doing good, man. And I am pumped for our guest today, the CEO of On Ramp Invest founder of 401 STC, a graduate of Seton Hall University, 2004 Olympic trials qualifier in track and field, recognized by Investment News 40, under 40 in 2019. He was named to Investopedia's top 100 financial advisors. I am talking about Tyrone Ross Jr. Tyrone, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This is going to be a ball. I love the intros. Superman lover. Yeah. Yeah, man. I'm excited, man. Uh, yeah. This will be a fun one, man. You know, Tyrone, the, the first time I uh, came across you, I think it was like 2020. We actually were both uh, part of the the Chips for Charity Stock Twits uh, oh. poker tournament. And uh, you actually, um, you had the, you came on right before I did. And, yeah. you know, being the good public speaker that you are, you went on this, this good monologue uh, you know, about, um, uh, you know, giving opportunities to the underprivileged communities, uh, educating them. And then I'm up next and I'm talking game theory and probabilities, you know, you kind of set me up. It was a little bit of a letdown, <laughs> I imagine, but, uh, yeah, man, do, do you remember that event at all? No, I do. I do. They see, they had me go cause I'm not that smart. They just wanted me to get people hyped. See, you came in with all the smart stuff. So, um, but no, I, it, I remember it and, and actually did it a few months ago too, but big fan of what they're doing. Anything for charity, they know to tag me in. So yeah, big fan of them and big fan of, of giving back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a lot. I was like, and I and I, I even said it on stream. I'm like, God, I'm like, how am I supposed to follow this up? You know? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, just, I, I will make it hard to follow me though. That's one thing I will do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Good stuff, man. Just a reminder to the listeners, if you guys would like to join JJ, myself, supportive community traders, you can join us at microefutures.com. So uh, Tyrona, you know, I wanted to first, you know, talk about the start of your career, uh, you know, and then just the, the trajectory that you've taken. Uh, when, when did you know you first wanted to be in finance? Um, when a graduate professor said, hey, you'd be great on Wall Street. And I'm like, what the hell is Wall Street? <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know what Wall Street was. Right. So, you know, I grew up in a home. Where I was the first one to finish high school, um, you know, unbanked and then eventually underbanked, if you will, not a big fan of those terms I say underserved, but you know, that's really what it was for the time being as I knew it as. So when I walked on the wall street at 26 years old, I didn't know anything. I didn't know what a stock was. I didn't know what bond was. I tell this story often. Like I walked right by the New York stock exchange. I'm like, well, why are these people standing outside? Like what the hell is going on here? <laughs> so I was clueless. So I didn't grow up in a home where financial education or money, any of that stuff was taught. So I didn't go after finance, finance found me. I was a juvenile probation officer before my first wow. Wall Street job. And uh, my first job was investor relations and PR for a small company called Financial Dynamics, which was eventually bought by FTI Consulting, which is a public company. And 
I was underwater. I'm like, I don't know what language they're talking here. I don't know what <laughs> my side, sell side, market making, all the 10 Qs, 10 Ks. I'm like, what is all of this? And so I was just lost. And I had a mentor there um, who was, you know, was former Lehman. And he kind of saw my personality. It was kind of like a cage lion. He was like, you just not the type to be sitting staring at computer screens all day. We got to like set you free. And he had mentioned the Series 7 and all that other stuff. And I'm like, well, what the hell is that? Right. So he's like, you got to get a company to sponsor you or whatever. So long story less long, ended up at a Wolf of Wall Street chop shop um, in Manhattan called Rockwell Securities, where I learned to cold call. Um, and to this day, I will put my cold calling skills up against anybody who ever lived. Um, and there I started to hear about wirehouses. I'm like, well, okay, well, what is a wirehouse now? What, what is this? Right. So I'm just learning along the way. Um, and then, you know, eventually ended up at Merrill Lynch where I was, um, there for five years. And that is where I discovered Bitcoin in 2015, but also learned how to be a financial advisor and eventually, you know, get into financial planning and all those other things. So, um, it is very much a circuitous route, but one where, again, I, I never thought this was a career for me. All of this has been like, what? Right. Like I wanted to be an Olympian. I didn't want to be the CEO of a tech company. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's funny that the past we take and uh, man, the chop shop, man, uh, cold calling JJ. I know that's something you uh, you're very hey, familiar with. I started as a phone chimp in 1990, 1992. There you go. Right? 120 oh, calls a day. No problem. Yeah, you know, and uh, yeah, and then I, I did, uh, yeah, I did like I had 200 companies that were clients, you know, and then uh, because we did advertising for them and then, you know, they got me a job as a on the trade desk. So I basically sold stock for insiders for, you know, 25 years. Mm -hmm. wow. uh, Rockwell, Rockwell sounds funny. I might have even used that room. You might have. Uh, <laughs> Was that 40 Wall Street? Well, I, it's funny, very familiar. No, I know the firm you're thinking of there, but we were actually in Penn Plaza. So we were right in oh, Penn State. Okay. Oh, yeah. okay. Oh, but I know okay. the I know the firm you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Because I mean, I, I had like, I had to like, as my buddies in Long Island would say, JJ, we need to move paper. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so I, I needed yeah. like as many boiler rooms as I could get, you know? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, what is the name of that firm? I remember going there and it was like literally walking into a movie. They got the kids, like, you yeah. know, they're all yeah, marked oh, yeah. in the room. They're, yeah. you know, got their pitch book, right? Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, they, yeah, yeah. Got to need the pitch book. But yeah, absolutely. Oh. That's great. And no wooden, no wooden tickets, right? No wooden tickets. No wooden tickets. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, no wood. You get it no thrown wood. right back at you. <clears throat> exactly. <laughs> yeah, no yeah, wood. Yeah. I, I, used to, I used to do sales too, once upon a day. I, I mean, I'd imagine, I mean, you guys could, you could tell me what you think. I, I think you learn a lot of, a lot of skills though, from doing that cold calling. I don't think there's as much things harder than that. I, I have to be completely honest. At the time I was like, this is the worst thing ever. Like, <laughs> right. And now I'm so glad I did it because if you look at it, it teaches you so many critical skills that you can use in the business place. Like literally, I know it's it's abusive. Some folks went overboard, but 
your ability to sell, which is not a dirty word, right? Your, your exactly. ability to communicate a message and stay on task, your straight line, exactly. as they exactly. call it, right? Um, and, and a remarkable work ethic, right? If you can, exactly. and you know, you mentioned 120, they used to have us dial across the country. So we would do yeah. 600 dials a day. Exactly, right? exactly. Right? You yeah. Take your phone, Right. And, it, you know, repetition of just practice of like skill yeah. milling. Right. They call yeah. it. So you walk in first thing in the morning, they, a senior broker stand up, pitch me. Right. Yeah. Hello, Mr. Business Clients. How are you? Today? The reason for the phone call. Right. Like, you know, so you just that repetition and skill set. Yeah. But yeah, man, so, so true. I tell people that all the time. They go, oh, you're such a great speaker and this, that, whatever. And like, yeah, pitch people for eight hours a day, right? Yeah. <laughs> Trying to get them to buy Berkshire B shares, right? Like, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, you know it'll, it'll warm your heart, right? And, and oh, definitely. Yeah, your negotiation oh, skills, your ability to rebuttal, oh, the ability to think on your feet, all these different things. The ability now for me to do live television, right? Because yeah, you're so used to do it. Like, so yeah. highly, highly, it's a shame it's going away. Yeah. But and what's he, I think the only thing better than cold calling is those who go door to door. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, my, my old boss, when I started in 92, he had opened a firm in the 50s and he used to go door to door selling investments back in the day. Yeah, that's a whole ever, ever Jones style. Yeah, oh, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Right? How much coffee can you drink in a day? Right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, this is bringing back so much memories. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grab a phone book and start cold calling people tonight. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so Tyrone, I, I know you're saying, man, you kind of, uh, you know, that this profession found you didn't really know anything about it. You got into it when you were 26. Was there a little bit uh, like what were your first impressions of maybe like the uh, the, the the culture? Was it a bit of a shock for you? Was there a big learning curve? Just maybe just speak to that. Yeah, it, it was it was huge. It, it was, Again, it was, imagine not speaking the language of money or being in a foreign land and everyone speaking the language you don't understand. I didn't know what they were saying. Um, so that was the first thing was just I, I realized I didn't know money. I didn't know what money was. I didn't know where it came from. All I knew was like you were supposed to earn it with this hand and spend it with this hand. That's all I knew. And when I started to learn the language of money, I'm like, oh, my God, this is what my family and all of us lack like we just I remember just telling all of you know friends and my parents I'm like these people just live different right um that was the first thing and then the second thing was you realize the chasm very early between the haves and the have-nots and I don't mean by dollars I mean by the knowledge of inflationary markets, deflationary markets, secular bulls right all, all this language how to navigate and where to put your money when and when to rebalance and dollar, like all these things, like who knew this? And then the last thing was just how incredibly racist it was, right? Um, and I tell people this all the time, I've been all around the country. I've never, I've born and raised in New Jersey, went to school in the South, never experienced racism in the Northeast like I have anywhere else, right? So- Really? Yeah, it is, it's not even close. It's not even close. And I've been in the deep South, right? Um, and, I, and I've experienced it. And now I'm in, you know, San Diego. I'm in La Jolla, San Diego. And there's some folks oh, nice. who still cross the street, right? And then do certain things. I used to that. But in, in the Northeast, not only are they incredibly wealthy, but they are also, it, it's, it's your face to face with all of the diversity and culture that is there. So if you embrace that or you're not. So you add their bigotry with the money and then the power and then this, this, this secular way of, of getting in these communities. And it's just horrible, 
horrible racism and things that I experienced that was told um, to my face. So I was kind of like, ooh, this is a whole, it's a whole different world. Um, because you go from, again, being a juvenile probation officer where everyone looks, walks, talks, and act like you, you're in inner city communities, is whatever, and boom, next thing you know, you're on Wall Street, and they're like, why are you here, right? Did you go to Dartmouth? Did you go to Harvard? Did you? No, first one in my family finished high school, barely graduated college, but I'm here, right? So when you don't have that pedigree as well, they start to wonder, um, you know, why you're in the room. To that end, though, one of the things that you bring, right? I was born with a PhD, poor, hungry, and driven, okay. right? I'm never, ever, 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 ever going to be outworked. I know people talk that, but when you grew up how I grew up, that desire, that hunger, you, it's just not, right? This, you probably should go another route. Try and be smarter than me, but don't try to outwork me. And I've, I, I ingratiated myself to a lot of folks that way. I also want to say, even with the folks that were incredibly racist to me, there were some wonderful folks that white men, especially, who were very key and pivotal in my career. Right. They opened doors for me as well. So I don't I, I want to make sure there's that balance. But to this day, I've never experienced racism like I experienced it in the Northeast and especially working in financial services. So wow. to yeah, that. Wow. Yeah, it, it was. So it was all it was all of those things. And then you just start to realize that. This is a way out, right? It's the way out. It's not dribbling. It's not getting my head smashed into for four hours every Sunday. It's not rapping. This is it. Like, this is the way out. Um, and I realized as I transitioned out of my athletic career, right, and, and I, I had to look at the next step, I realized that. I was able to pick up the crumbs, if you will, of a, of a career of, you know, I, I qualified for Olympic trials in 04. I started on Wall Street in 06. 08, I was a half a second off the qualifier. 2012, I tore my groin right before the Olympic trials. But through all of that, I was still working in finance and developing my skill set and all that other stuff. So when it was time for me to transition into a new life, I was able to take a lot of those experiences with me. So I'm forever grateful for it in spite of all the, the nadirs and hard time. Yeah. You know, Tyrone, you, know, you don't seem like a, a meek or a passive person, you know, well, maybe with some of this racism experienced in the workplace, right? Like how, how did you yeah. navigate that? How do you, how do you confront uh, that in the workplace? Um, well, I was younger then. So there was, I, I did, I'll just say I moved a conference room table, mm -hmm. um, but <laughs> I mean, how do you respond when someone tells you that you should change your name from Tyrone to Tyler because it's too black? Like, what do you say? Right. Like I have my father's name. My father came to this country from Guyana, barely able to read and write, took care of my mother, who was a teenage mother with my sister and said, if you teach me how to read and write and get a job, I'll take care of you. I wear my father's name like a badge of honor. You telling me I got to change my name because it's too black. Oh, OK. How do you respond when a, a branch manager is calling you a nigger? to your face and gets promoted. How do you respond to that, right? How do you respond when a client gets off the elevator and she says, oh, honey, I, uh, I, I was in Newark last night and, and there were two black men who got on the elevator and I immediately got off. How do you respond to that? But I realized at that moment when she said that there was this big Merrill Lynch logo behind me and I'm like, oh, she's attached. I'm attached to Merrill Lynch. She's attached to that brand. So she finds comfort in me. 
right? So how do you respond to that? Except for being hurt, except for getting better, not bitter, but also acting out the very first time I had because I couldn't believe that that was said to me. I was like, I couldn't believe the gall, right? It was said, I mean, I've, I've had doors closed in my face when folks, I call folks, hey, it's Tyrone at Merrill Lynch, this, that, whatever, you go to the house and they open the door. It's like, my name is Tyrone. What'd you expect me to look like? <laughs> like, this is one of the blackest names. Kendrick Lamar said it. I'm blacker than the names Tyrone and Darius, right? My name is blacker than Midnight. Like, come on, what'd you expect, right? Yes, a 6'2 black dude showed up at your door, right? Let's talk about mutual funds. So, you know, it's, it's those experiences that now that I can laugh at, but at the time they were hurtful, right? And you really don't know, is this for me? Like, do they want me here? And I was trying to be something that I wasn't. And I think that's a good transition to where I, w- I left Merrill Lynch and went independent. And I went into the RAA space. I'm like, oh, now I could really be myself, right? Crypto played a big part in that. Mm-hmm. I, I, was, I was forced out of Merrill Lynch because that last experience that I had with this gentleman who said very terrible things to me, I was kind of like, I got to go, right? Um, so, you know, going independent and really, I was like, you know what, if I'm going to do, if I'm going to stay in financial services, I have to be myself. I'm going to be uniquely me because I know one thing, there is nobody in the world better at being me when I'm uniquely me being me and when I'm me executing on me being me, right? Like I'm the best me I can be. But when I try and be other people, I'm not that good at that, right? So I started to lean into my background. I started to lean into the fact that I'm a voice for the voices. I started to lean into the fact that I grew up in a, in a home that was financially illiterate, right? That I, I was going to use those experiences to propel me and also speak to, to people who, are, who grew up in same circumstances and environments with the, with the platform that I was given. Um, and again, because I, was, I did that, I'm able to sit here and talk with folks like you. You would have never known me or or been able to sit here and talk to me if I didn't follow what was in my heart and follow my own path. You know what I mean? So that's really what it brought out of me. It, 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 it was trial by fire, but I'm glad it happened because it got me here. Absolutely, man. That was beautiful, man. Juiced me up, man. Excellent. And that's a good segue. (laughs) Yeah. Good good segue into, uh, you know, into crypto. Cause I mean, you are, you are one of the most outspoken advisors on crypto. Um, I know a lot are very tentative and, and we'll jump into that a little bit too, but I, I'm just curious. So what were your first thoughts when you got introduced into Bitcoin? I think you said around what, 2015? 2015. I thought it was stupid. I thought it was a scam, just like everyone else. I'm like, man, this is incredibly dumb. Like, and my friend kept, no, no, this is the next great thing. You better than sliced bread and your mother's sweet potato pie. I'm like, all right, what is this? But I wouldn't listen. And he realized though, he knew my background. And he knew how to get me. So I never forget it. I was, I was traveling from the office home and I got home and he was like, sit down for a second. Let me just send you some. I'm like, all right, man. So he had me download this app called Bread Wallet. And he had three of us on the phone. And he was like, I want to show you this really quickly. So he sent me some and he was like, I'll never forget it. He said, he's like, the magic trick isn't over. You're going to send it to somebody else. But when I immediately saw him send that and then it, I, it showed up in my phone in that app, I was like, stop everything. Stop it all. Tell me more because I only needed to see my mother cry so many times on the way to the check cashing place, right? Or waiting for, you know, a check to come in the mail to go cash the check and can't put it in the bank because it's going to take too long to settle. But wait, you just sent me money to my phone 
instantaneously. So at that moment, I was like, I got to learn everything about this. It's, this is this is changing a lot for me, just my perspective. So he put me in a Facebook group chat and it was some of the smartest people, right? Talking about stuff that I was like, what the hell is this stuff they're talking about? But I stood, I stood back and I'm like, man, they are giving each other some horrible investment advice. I'm like, this is terrible, right? Like they know <laughs> nothing about investing. They don't know nothing about traditional markets. And the light bulb just went off. And I remember going to my mentor and I'm like, I'm going to be the crypto advisor. And he was kind of like, that's great, but you can't do it at Merrill Lynch. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, so, yeah. you know, that's, that's when, you know, uh, I left. 2000, well, before I left in 2016, Labor Day 2016, I had a meeting with Howard Lindzen. And Howard Lindzen said he was coming to New York. And I asked for a couple minutes of his time. And we sat for an hour and a half. And at the end of it, he goes, yo, man, do yourself a favor. Right. And easy for him to say he was wealthy and successful by then. But he was like, do yourself a favor, leave Merrill Lynch and go bet on yourself. Learn everything you can learn about early stage startups of crypto. You have an insurmountable lead. They'll never catch you. And I left this meeting with this big old battery in my back. And I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna do it. Right. And I did. And I went all in on startups. I went all in on crypto. And then I started to build a, a practice around it. But I also started to tweet and say things about it. Um, even before leaving Merrill Lynch, which shouldn't have, right? But anyway, um, <laughs> they, they weren't checking. They weren't checking Twitter. They still not. Um, so I started to build up. You know, I started to build up a following there, and that was, you know, and that was really it. But my first thoughts was like everyone else: what is this? It's a scam or whatever. And this is why I always tell people: this is important. I, I signed out of high school to go to Georgia Tech, right? But I, I was I was never I never showed this incredible aptitude in math and science and all that other stuff or any of that. And I've never, you know, I've I've grown to love numbers and all this other stuff later in my career and been drawn to some of this stuff. But that's not how I came to it. I came to it based on childhood trauma, right? I'm like, oh my God, this can help me, it helps so many people. So you're going to come to crypto in your own lens. You're going to look at it different if you're a dev, if you're a quant, if you're an artist, if, right? Like you're going to come to crypto in your own way. And I do like to separate Bitcoin from everything else. But for me, I was just like, wait a minute. This is something that to the people who grew up like me, how is, how is this not something that is promoted early and often to them? So that's kind of how I came to it, man. And then I'm, now I just make it my duty to make sure folks understand what it means for the folks that are underserved and the light that Bitcoin has, has shown on this big chasm between the wealth inequality in the country. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, just speaking to the point, you're talking about like, you know, everyone coming to crypto for their own reasons. You know, I went to the, um, the conference. I'm down here in South Florida. I went to the, the conference in Miami. And that was something I took away too, is we have everyone from all different walks of life coming together, you know, for this, this cause, this movement. And that's what I took away from it. And I thought it was a beautiful thing. Um, you know, Tyrone, I know it's probably a little bit different right now. Uh, the rest, uh, the receptivity to crypto, I think it's a lot more prevalent, but you started in 15, 16. I'm sure you had a lot of clients or peers probably looking at you like, yo, this dude's crazy. Nice. Yeah. Uh, how, how did you deal with that? Like, how, how did you just, just, just have that, like that, that self-confidence in yourself? Like, no, no, like this is the way. Um, a couple things. One is 
when you have suffered a unique suffering and you have seen the suffering exacerbated by an industry that purposely excludes folks who don't speak their language, it was very easy to have something to fight for. I'm a fighter by nature. I like a cause. And when you traveled the country like I have and looked into the eyes of poor children and poor people and seeing how my parents struggled, it was worth being wrong because I knew that this was something that these people should hear about and it was gonna change financial services and just make it more inclusive. And for those listening, I am a, I am, I'm punch drunk off crypto. I'm a crypto hippie. But what I love, crypto could go to zero. It all could go to zero. But what it has done when it was introduced into the world 13 years ago, again, that big light of why don't we have a real-time payment system in the United States? Why is it 5% on top of whatever you're sending for remittance still in 2022? Why is it still so much to send a wire? <laughs> like all of these things. Exactly. Why are we still using ACH, which was built? Exactly. Right. Like yeah. all of these things, if for no other reason, it did that. It would make folks go, ah, I don't really get the whole uh, folks with pictures of apes in their icons, but this stuff, I get it. This sucks. Right? I mean, so that's the part of it to me where it was like, if I could just get folks to focus on that. And these are real life problems for real life people still in this country. Right. Japan introduced real time payments in the 70s. We still don't have it. And Fed now is supposed to be coming maybe in 2023. That's a problem. Right. So I just think if nothing else, crypto goes, OK, well, we're just going to run some lines of code and we're going to absorb almost one hundred and fifty billion of assets into DeFi. And the SEC goes, how the hell did they do that? Right. Like, how do we regulate microloans? This is scary. Right. But it's it's. And yes, does DeFi have a long way to go? Sure. But it's the possibility. Right. That technology is allowing now and. I think that digital social justice angle for me was able to fight for. But bringing it back to your question to my peers, yes, I was called crazy and nuts or whatever, but I also looked at how many to this day still, because I don't you know, actively practice, but I'm going to start actively practicing again because the demand is so great. 2016, 17, I had so many young people that owned a lot of crypto and wanted a financial advisor. So I'm like, I hear what y'all saying, but... This is good for business, exactly. right? And this was back then. So I realized that they, they were young, they were entrepreneurial, they were tech forward. They watched their parents go through the 08, 09 crisis. Here is something that is kind of anti-establishment, if you will. Yep. And they just wanted help. And I was like, oh, okay, I'm on to something here, right? And yes, I've looked stupid for a really long time. But boy, do I look smart in 2022 because you had an asset class that went to 3.6 trillion in total market cap without four cents of wealth management money, right? And now everyone wants advisors in. Why? Because they manage four times the wealth of retail. You have 330,000 individual investment advisors. You have 28,000, right? Uh, RIAs, almost which half of which are SEC registered, meaning they are um, 110 million in size or more. 
90 plus percent of all assets in the RAA space are held at firms 5 billion or more. And when you narrow that down and you look at, oh, okay, the average principal to RAA is 62. <laughs> the average age of an advisor is 55. And then you look at the oldest millennials now being 40, the youngest about, you know, late 20s. And then the oldest millennial, uh, the oldest Gen Z are in their early 20s. Wealth management is not set up to deal with the wealth transfer and these folks like, like they're exactly. dead. They're dead. Exactly. So you, you can see that now and everyone's like, oh my God, how do we get in front of it? So it's, it's a good time to be building in it. But so it was easy for me to have conviction with all of those things combined. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, great. Phenomenal foresight. I mean, 2015, 2016. And, and yeah, I mean, just the whole landscape. I mean, especially now it's just all changing. And then the, the whole, the demographic uh, issue you were talking about, man. So shout out to you, man, for, for, you know, sticking to that early, getting on Appreciate that trend, good for business, man. Absolutely. So, so Bitwise did a study uh, and they found that, and I found this very interesting, right? That a lot of advisors are, are, were allocating their own capital to crypto, but not clients. Yeah. Right. So, so what's, what's the reason for that, Tyrone? So it's funny. I just had Matt, Matt Hogan on my podcast from Bitwise to talk about this, right? 47% of advisors doing it in their POA, right there. I mean, their PA, their, their, their personal account, but only 22% advocating on behalf of clients. So let me get this straight. It's good enough for you, <laughs> but not for your clients, right? And again, I've, I'm techno-empathetic. I understand what advisors have to go through because I am one. I understand. But if you look in that report of the three things that advisors consider their major concerns. And again, this is RAs. The first one was regulatory clarity. The SEC has given RAs all the clarity that they want. Volatility. Okay. Is it too volatile for you or too volatile for the client? Right? Like these are all valid questions to ask, right? Those are the top two. So I think what advisors are realizing is, again, we are at peak mass acceptance. We're not at mass adoption yet. We might be because McDonald's was trolling on this downturn here that we've had, which was amazing. So we might, that might be the sign of us reaching mass adoption if McDonald's is trolling crypto folks on Twitter. But we are at mass acceptance. So everyone is just saying, oh, I am going to have to keep hearing this at every Thanksgiving dinner, right? Like it's just not going away. And the kids are playing Axie Infinity and then they're buying crazy donkeys sitting on a banana with... Yeezy's on. Who the hell knows what's going on here? So it's not going away. So I think advisors have started to go, all right, well, let me try and figure this out and do it myself. But also, there's a couple of things that I think are barriers to entry why advisors haven't fully gone in. And again, I, I am going to throw my peers a bone here. One is E&O insurance, right? Um, errors and omissions, right? Of, okay, I don't want to botch this to held away probably is better with the client does it themselves. But mm. if I'm submitting a trade on behalf of a client or do I have to put in the public key or prop, you don't, but I get that. But E&O insurance. The other is how do I get paid? The reason why advisors want an ETF is because it's super easy, right? And I've gone on record. I, again, you can check the track record. I think a Bitcoin ETF is stupid. I've been saying this for years, but I digress, right? I've, I've called the truce between Wisdom Tree, who's an investor, and so I've called the truce. So talking about Bitcoin ETF, I still think it's silly. We're going to get it. I have promised everyone that follows me when we do get a spot Bitcoin ETF, I am going to have an epic meltdown on Twitter. So stay tuned for that when we get one. But um, I just don't think you take a twenty four seven asset class and stick it in this wrapper and then charge people for it 
Like we, we, we're going back and back and back, right? Let's move forward. Direct ownership is the way to go. Yeah. So I think that's what advisors are just, if, if, if it comes in this wrapper, I know I can charge on it, right? I can charge 1%. I can stick it next to VOO and wherever else and charge 1% and go play golf, right? It's easy. So advisors want the easy button and they want to know how to get paid. And that really hasn't been figured out for them. That's why we're building on rent. But so, so those are, that's the second thing. And I think the third thing is advisors are just in a world now where the clients know more than them, right? It's usually the advisor knows more than you, right? Tell me about REITs, right? Tell me about security-based lending. Tell me about, right? And it, oh, yeah, boom, 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 boom. Right. This good Wharton education and the CFA and the CFP and the 66, 63 hut, hut hike. Right. All that stuff. Right. You, you have all of that and you're like, oh, I know it. I've been trained on it. Now the client comes, hey, ZK Rollups and Arbitrum and Celsius and BlockFi. You know, and you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't know what any of this is. So I think advisors are now in a corner where the clients know more than them. And it, they're being exploited because I know a lot of folks are coming back to me and saying, that, recommend, that recommendation you gave me, I'm not using them. I know more than them, right? Like send me someone else or can I work with you? So huge opportunity here for the young advisor listening or anyone that wants to get in. If I'm 25 right now, I'm getting a CFP. I'm picking, by the way, kids, here's the lesson. Niche when you're looking for it, niche when you find it, right? So I would pick a niche. When I find my niche, it becomes my niche. And then I'll say my niche is working with 30-year-old tech startup founders who own a lot of crypto or whatever, and you do planning and estate planning for them, tax planning, and you will shoot the lights out. You'll grow a huge business because again, the, the way wealth management is set up right now, they are not set up for this younger investor whose portfolio is going to look like nothing they've ever seen before. Huge opportunity for those that are entrepreneurial and want to stick it out. Yeah. I, I know you're familiar with Michael Gayed. Um, we had oh, yeah. him on last week. We had a great discussion. I really, uh, really enjoyed talking to him. Very smart guy. Um, and we, we discussed the, uh, the, the store of value narrative uh, for BTC. I think you might have even had conversations with him. Um, I think I tuned into a space you guys were doing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, the last week. Yeah. Last week it was. Uh, so, so what's your take just for the listeners? What's your take on the narrative of BTC as a store of value? Um, I, I never I never understood that. A long-term store of value, right? Long-dated call option on a store of value. That's how I describe it. Potentially, yes, for sure. Inflation hedge, well, <laughs> we have evidence here. But again, to be fair, Bitcoin had to go through all of these different environments to see how it performs. And it's still very young. So over time, will it be an inflation hedge? Perhaps right now, it doesn't really look so. But as a store of value, it's more of that than money, if you will, depending on where your feet are. Horrible form of money in the United States of America, Zimbabwe, Nigeria, Guyana, where my dad is, I mean, my, my uncle is, probably a better form of money, not so much here. So I do think it's a long dated call option on a store of value. I think it has those properties, but we'll see, right? I think for now, it is a risk asset, a risk on asset for sure, right? Asset for sure. I think it is speculative. I think you kind of look at it as like a venture investment or whatever. Some properties of money, yeah. Some properties of an inflation hedge, sure. Some properties of store value, great. 
right? It has all these different properties. That's what makes Bitcoin so incredible. It's like you, you pull any, anything, any card out the hat, it has some characteristic of that. So I think that's what makes it very unique. But that's getting into the little B, the big B, Bitcoin blockchain that's 100% uptime in, in a powerful you know, monetary network. Now that is all of those things, right? Because it's given this layer for folks to bring, to have financial services that has never had it before, for them to get money, for them to get stores of value, for them to, like now you're talking a whole different game. But I know, I know Michael likes to rail on the crypto community there about those narratives. But it, it, again, I think those of us agree, it kind of ran away with it for a bit. Bitcoin is Bitcoin is Bitcoin. It needs to prove itself in these different environments, right? Low rate environment now moving into an environment where the Fed is raising and all these other things and drawdowns and global macro events. It, we got we have to see how it responds, right? I remember a time where it was just like a pet rock. It just sat there like yeah. it didn't do anything, right? No Fed announcement. No, no, no. It just all right. It's just being Bitcoin, right? But yeah. it, that's changed and that, that will continue to happen over time. Yeah, yeah. And, and to, to be fair to Michael, I think a lot of people misunderstand him. I think he likes to have fun with it. I mean, yeah. he's, he I think he well, I, I don't know if he said it or not, but he says it's he sees a place for having allocation to crypto to that area. He just he, he's a very strict like, hey, like, listen, if you know, he doesn't buy into the narratives. He's, he's real big into like you can't predict the future. You know, yeah. he, he's a real strict trader in that nature. And I could I could appreciate well, that. The other thing, I mean, he, you got to liquidity is an issue. Mm -hmm. I mean, liquidity is the ability to transact size without adversely affecting price. Uh, I don't see that in any market these days, Bitcoin or equities, mm -hmm. right? Um, yeah. Look at Facebook. Look at Facebook today. Look how little volume took that stock down. These markets are not liquid, right? So, you know, that, that part I get about him saying, how can you have a store of value that's not liquid? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I think he's right on that. Yeah, and I just that's what I took away. He just is just real strict, disciplined mindset from there. So speaking of trading, Tyrone, uh, trading and investing, right? You're gonna take lumps, uh, and I know you're a man that's of the mindset of embracing struggle. What's your advice to listeners on embracing pain and struggle? Endure. Um, pain and struggle are any. It's it's part of life, and I think if you learn to embrace what pain is teaching you and what struggle teaches you is to endure is self-reflection it is focusing on areas where you may not know you are strong it is highlighting areas where you may have weaknesses and things that you need to fasten up but i think whether it is pain and struggle in markets pain and struggle in life pain and struggle in relationships pain and struggle in anything you endure you stand you grin you bear it and you come out on the other side with so many lessons of gratitude and appreciation of having endured. And the best way out is through, right? Not looking for a way out, but I'm gonna go through it. It sucks, I'm gonna go through it, I know, but I'm gonna stand here and grin and bear it. And then at the end of it, right? This too shall pass, right? As, as my mother would say, you'll get through the other end of it, but then you're able to rub your wounds and go, oh man, all right, I'm alive, but I, all right, oh, I remember the scar, right? I'm going to blow on the slice of pizza next time before I bite it, right? So. You know, and I say this all the time, perfect example. Everyone talks about Robin Hood and all these other things. Well, giving folks exposure and investor protections or whatever. And, you know, well, we've all made a bad trade. We've all done something the first time and what's horrible at it. You have to learn. I have to get exposure first. Now, 
Did Robin Hood do a bad job of educating folks and making it? Yes, that's not what I'm saying here. What I'm saying is this. I, I had never been to college before. I didn't know what college was. I got a full scholarship to go to college. Should I not have gone because I had never been and nobody in my family had been? And, you know, I, I didn't know what I was getting myself into. No, I had to go. I had to experience. I got kicked out of Georgia Tech twice and had to finish up at Seton Hall. But you know what happened? I was the first over the wall. I got shot. But my niece was the second. Right. And now she graduated college and she went on to graduate school and now she works with my company at OnRamp, right? Like, so I had to be first over the wall and get that education and bring it back. Hey, you better study. You better go to class, right? You know, study more than you party, right? This, these are the, I had to be first. So there was a baptism by fire, if you will. And it hurt. Sure, there were tears, there was struggle, there was everything. But without that lesson, I don't have an endowment at Georgia Tech now for scholarships for young men or young women that are first-generation high school graduates themselves, if I had never gone through the pain of getting kicked out and embarrassed, I'm not able to go back to Georgia Tech now and have an endowment there in my name would be able to provide scholarships for people to hopefully graduate and do what I didn't. That's why you endure. That's why you deal with the pain. Yes, sir. Tyrone, some rapid-fire questions, and I'll get you on your way, all right? Go. All right. How far off are you from your fastest 400-meter time? Woo uh, four seconds, four seconds. Okay. So, so, uh, how about, you know, cause I'm a football guy. Uh, I can only really like understand speed and 40 time. What, what was your fastest 40 time? Fastest 40 time when I was playing football, I ran four forty five as a sophomore in high school. Nice. Nice. Uh, I'm curious too, from like a sprinter standpoint, like, like when, or like, or yeah, I guess kind of four, does that considered sprint 400 meter? It's a long sprint. It's yes. a long sprint. It's a long sprint. Because, <laughs> you know, I see, uh, you know, I was thinking the Summer Olympics, I was seeing some people well into their 30s. When does a sprinter kind of hit uh, hit a peak, you think, age-wise? Uh, it's late 20s, right? I was able to run times that I was running at 24, 32, right? My last shot was in 2012. Um, and I was right back at where my peak was at 24. So you could kind of hold it until, you know, you're, you're – Late to early 30s, for sure. Okay. All right. All right. Interesting. Favorite musician from Jersey? I know this might be a tough one. You could do a couple if you need. Oh, favorite musician from Jersey. I can't lie. I'm. It's a tie between Naughty by Nature and Joe Button. Okay. <laughs> all right. What about yeah. what about? I have to go Redman. I, I would pick Redman if it was going back to me. Yeah, See, it's tough. See, I, but then if we're really digging in, do you go Fuji's? I think Lauren Hill is the best rapper out of all of those, right? I'd argue about Lauren Hill all the time. If she was ever committed to rap, good lord. But yeah. um, but yeah, that's that's a good one. Red Man's a good one. But yeah, I like, I like it's funny for, for when when Joe Budden had his like you know his relationship phase, like <laughs> he's like speaking exactly to my relationship experiences, and he's also a part of my favorite rap group ever, which is Slaughterhouse. Yeah. So. You know, it's it's kind of a double whammy there. So I'll go with I'll go with Joe or or Ty with Joe and Naughty by Nature. Yeah, yeah, excellent. It was good to see because I uh, Nas had Lauren Hill on his recent album. Uh, yeah, I like that song. That was that was dope. Yeah, um, how about this? I I know uh, you're into storytelling. That's a big that's a big thing for you. Uh, do you have a favorite storyteller or someone who just translates a message well? Oh man, um, I probably have to go with David Chappelle. Dave Chappelle is the best storyteller there yeah. is. I mean, I know he's a great comedian, but he's a better storyteller. He he tells stories and you just lean in. 
The other mm-hmm. is um, Andreas Antonopoulos, um, who is his YouTube. I tell people all the time you're getting started in crypto. He explains crypto in a way that is so clear and concise. Like no one explains anything better than he explains crypto. Um, but yeah, I would go. I would go with those two. Yeah, nice, nice JJ. I know you know both of us big fans. Yeah, Jason Fell, that's oh. great. Yeah, and I think when I first got into crypto too, as well, like Antonopoulos was one of the first guys I stumbled oh. upon. Yeah, unreal, unreal. Yeah. Uh, tips for uh, public speaking. Ooh, tips for public speaking. Um, I know this is unorthodox. Don't prepare. Don't read or prepare from a script. Right. If you do have a script, write it memorize it, but don't use it when you're speaking, right? Just try and, so this way, if you have to be nimble and move off of it, but again, have your straight line down, but don't take it to you and read off of it or whatever. Um, Second thing is listen well, right? Really, really listen. One is if you're being interviewed like this or two, reading body language so you can adjust your message in real time. Um, And three, rehearse in terms of, when every opportunity that you are given to present um, or get interviewed or do podcasts or whatever, kind of use that as repetitions for what it is that you need to communicate a message in your own realm. So whether it's communicating to kids, communicating to your spouse, communicating to coworkers or whatever, really be in tune with, is, and I have something on my wall says the greatest illusion of communication is that it has been achieved, right? So you think you said something, and you got it across, but you probably didn't. So I think if you learn to communicate with different groups, especially those under 10, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I have three nephews. If you can really communicate with, with those under 10, man, you are cooking with grease. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's, it's, kids are fun, man. Kids are a lot they of are. fun, man. They All are. right. All right. Last, and they last ask me a question. Yes, they do. Very inquisitive. Uh, very inquisitive. All right. Last one here. Um, influences, uh, whether historical or modern. Ooh, influences. I have to start with my mother and father, superhero parents. They're the greatest influence on my life and everything I do, I do is for them to make them proud. My high school track coach um, is another one. Um, I, I am, I, I, I was grown, you know, grew up in a, a Pentecostal home and I am Christian. And I tell folks to read the Bible, take the religiosity out of it. But if you read the Bible and you kind of look at um, the, the life of some of the folks in the, in the Bible, it kind of walk you through leadership and stuff like that. So, um, I'd have to say Jesus there, Martin Luther King. Um, and right now, uh, cause really, we don't have any really good leaders right now. Um, but, um, I don't know. I, I'm in, I, I love Howard Marks. I mean, I love, he's my favorite investor. I read all of his letters. I love Howard Marks. I love how he can take the complex and make it simple. Um, so yeah, that, that's my group there. Good stuff, man. Well, I think you're a good leader in our space, man. Appreciate um, you. Good stuff, man. So that's going to conclude today's episode of Confessions of a Market Maker. If you guys enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review it for us. If you'd like to join JJ and myself, supporter of community of traders, you can join us at microefutures.com, Tyrone. Let the listeners know where they can find you and anything else you'd like them to know. I'm easy to find, so I won't I won't make it about me. 
what I would love everyone to do, if you found value in this podcast, go to nokidhungry.org and help me end child hunger in this country. I appreciate you. Awesome. Good stuff, man. So for Tyrone, I'm Paulie Walnuts. He's the gorilla of House Street. <laughs> you stop, so. Salute. Tyrone, thank you, man. No doubt. That was a ton of fun. That was a ton of fun.